You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm one of the co-founders of Nori. Nori is a carbon removal marketplace based in Seattle, Washington. And today I have with me Zoya Tierstein, staff writer at Grist, an alumna from God, 2019 is when we last spoke, Zoya. Thanks for being back here. Yes, yeah, super glad to be back. I was um, just thinking that this is totally feels like full circle. Like, you know, when I when I came on the first time, I felt like I don't I know that I was in my 20s, but it feels like I was 16. And I don't know why it feels that way, but it's, I feel different now. You you mentioned that, and I don't remember you feeling especially young or green in the horn. I I feel like you covered all of because we we talked about carbon removal, or maybe it was just climate. Uh, platforms within the various uh, election exactly 2020 presidential candidates right that's what we were talking about that's right yeah and I had come with like all these notes and everything and I was just like so prepped and amped for like I think what was my first ever real podcast experience um so and this fun. time I'm here just I'm, I'm I'm six years older but I have no notes whatsoever <laughs> I'm coming so much less prepared I also uh, prepare less than I used to in some cases as well, especially when I've had authors on in the past. I've been, and this helps me get them on and it makes for better radio if you do. But I used to have people where, I, where I'd think, if I'm going to have you on, I have to have read literally ever, every book that you've ever written. Right. And um, turns out no one does that because it makes journalism or podcasting essentially impossible. <laughs> that, exactly. That right. I've also learned that the hard way. <laughs> So yeah, now anyways, though, at least your stuff is a little bit easier to digest. Although I saw that you had nearly 120 pages worth of several articles each. So you've <laughs> you've written the better part of a thousand articles, I think, since we last spoke. I couldn't catch up on all of those. Of course not. I mean, God, I, I can't. I mean, I have no, sometimes I'll be reminded of something I've written. I'm like, oh my God, what? Um, especially because Grist has changed so much in the past six years. I mean, I started as an intern and Grist was a blog. And now Grist is just a totally different organization, which I think is a good thing. I mean, it's definitely a good thing, um, objectively. But uh, you know, like they're you know now we're like a real a real magazine. So so it takes you know each article, each year that I look back on on my archive, which is you know it's it's rare, but I sometimes take stock of what I've done, and um, it feels like every year things get more professionalized and better. The writing is better, you know, and some of that just has to do with growing older and getting better at writing, but it's also has a lot to do with what, what Grist is like now versus back then. Do you feel like you could just show up and you know, the deadline, you have to get it in by 3 PM and you will, you will make something work. Damn it. <laughs> you will. <see> it. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's funny to say out loud, I, I, people so rarely ask like when there's a, when things are like recording, like what Grist is like as a workplace, but um, it's usually a conversation that happens, you know, not on a podcast, but, but Grist is just like incredibly chill compared to some other publications that require you to write, you know, like 10 stories a week. Grist is not like that. And, and deadlines are, you know, if you, I can have my editor and say, I mean, right now I'm working on a piece about West Nile virus and, the deadline for that passed a little while ago and I, you know, it's totally fine. Like there's not around you know, on the podcast with me. You're nice, just, really yeah, I was like, I gotta take an time. hour and do a podcast with Ross. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, no, it's, it's not as strict as all that. So you really have, I mean, the, the benefit of that is that you have so much time. Um, if, if you're writing a feature, I think for shorter pieces, those tighter turnaround, but if you're writing a feature, you, you can have as much time as you really need to get the story right. 
I think is rare in the industry. I know they're, that's basically the top of the pyramid for journalists. I'll see some of the, the journalists that are, you know, people know their names and uh, like regular people, civilians know their names, essentially. Totally. They'll have like one article every 18 months and it'll be a big feature and that's <laughs> seemingly, seemingly it. I'm like, what do they, what exactly. do they do? They're bringing down a nice paycheck. I'm sure in that time. Yeah. They're just shooting the shit with David Remnick. They're just hanging out. I mean, that would be nice. He's been on the podcast before. That was a uh, has he? Yeah, yeah. I I'd love to have him back on because they did that climate book for New Yorker. Also, Lenin's Tomb. Have you ever read that book? His uh, book? no, I haven't. But you're talking about the Liz Colbert um book. It's a children's book, right? No, wait. Oh, it's not. Uh, she she has wait. Sorry, she she has Elizabeth Colbert has a new book and it's a kids book. Yeah, it's like climate change A to Z or something like that. She wrote a magazine piece that was on that theme and then I think came out with the full book or is coming out with it. Oh, I, I need to go go check check on that. She's been you on the gotta show have before her too. On. She's oh she ha- okay. She's so great. She the way that I always put it, I sort of was so bashful having her on and I, I feel like I, I made myself blush more than her, but she's the <laughs> one of the writers that I read where she makes it look so easy. I'm like, I could I could write a book. Totally. No, no problem. And then you're like, oh, that's she's so good that the craft is essentially hidden. That's how good of a writer she is. You know what's funny about that, Ross, is that um, she is the reason. I mean, her book, The Sixth Extinction, is the reason why multiple people like Grist work at in climate change. I mean, we all read it and we were like, oh yeah, we could do this. And then we got into the field and we were like, oh, okay. So it's hard. So you're saying it's hard. That was so nice. That's so nice to have uh, external confirmation that I'm not the only person who had oh, yeah. a reaction. Even I read her piece about speaking with whales. Did you read that? I think that might have been her last New Yorker piece that came out. I don't think I read that one yet, but I have I have the New Yorker here on the on the counter right nearby. So <laughs> isn't that the main the main job of the New Yorker? I used to get it in print totally. when I was young and very pretentious, and they, oh, they yeah. stack up. That's quick. why we we order it. We we just want to send it out so people can see that we read. You know. Not enough to work in journalism. <laughs> we need no, more proof. No, not at all. I do like it when you when you name check people where I get to pat myself on the back for having had them on the podcast. That's always a nice feeling. Oh yeah. I mean, hey, I'm here to validate you. That's true. The whole podcast is all indulgence and making me feel good about myself. So that's why I'm over here. <laughs> done. Hopefully, hopefully we can nice chatting with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good. I feel great. <laughs> let's try and let's try and give you some of those feelings too, because your writing is really great as well. You're covering a new Thank beat. You. That is, I think, is underreported. Uh, we just we did a show recently on uh, like climate prepping and what the future might look like for personal and familial adaptation. And disease came up a lot, but I almost wow. never hear anyone lead a conversation with disease and climate. What what exactly is your beat? How do you define it? And why are you doing it now? So, oh, such a good question. I've never had the opportunity to answer this, um, you know, in in like podcast form. So I'm I'm really excited to be here. And I think that you, I mean. I, even the fact that you're having me on talk about this beat at all is a signal of, of some change, um, you know, in the way that people think about this overlap. It's easy to assume if you get deep enough into anything, it's easy to assume that, you know, or to think that everyone should be thinking about it and that it is the most important thing in the world. And I'm, I'm aware that when it comes to climate crisis, there's a lot of different essential angles. The thing about climate change and disease and climate change and human health is that it is such a visceral climate impact and it's not it's visceral because it's it's both like overt and totally subtle i mean 
there have been reports that have been coming out since like 2020. Um, so a little after I came on the show last time, um, there was a report that came out that said that climate change threatens to erode 50 years of public health gains. That's like progress on tobacco and cancer and like you name it, HIV, like a whole bunch of other stuff that we had kind of managed to corral and to tamp down. And climate change kind of is like opening a Pandora's box of these these ills that are just, they're hard to even sum up because they're so varied. The ones that I'm most interested in are the unexpected ones. So, um, you know, I've, I've, since we last talked, I've been to Alaska to cover toxic shellfish poisoning um, on the that coast there. That was a good piece too. Time. I really liked that one. I scared, scared that was an interesting out of piece. me, but yeah. Yeah, super scary. I mean, the, the funny thing about that trip is that, I mean, that was one of my first ever reporting trips. And I feel like I wish that more young journalists knew how fun traveling somewhere for a story is. I mean, that, that I was like, I made friends in Alaska that week. I mean, I, I almost didn't get on a flight back home because I was invited to a wedding. So I was like, yeah, by these cool, these, these like bear biologists that I met. It was just like a, it's like such a fun time. I think that might be somewhat unique to Alaska. Everyone's really friendly there, but in general, it's just you going like, like going Gonzo, Tom Wolf, Hunter S. Thompson style here. You know, you're just exactly like, I'm, the yeah, family. precisely. Yeah. yeah. I was like, I have to like infiltrate this community and like become part of it. Um, that story was interesting because, it, you know, you have uh, Alaska natives who, who depend on shellfish, you know, for subsistence living, which is a crucial part of life up there um, for most people, actually. Um, and you have this shellfish that is accumulating these toxins over time and becoming incredibly toxic. I mean, so, so toxic. You eat one of these clams or mussels, doesn't matter if you cook it or not, freeze it or not. I mean, it's, it just remains toxic and you can just die right there on the beach. I mean, people were dropping dead. So it's the only state where that happens because there's not this monitoring system. And, and, and so that's like one example of the type of story that I've been kind of um, hunting down since I've decided to, to cover this beat more or less full time. Um, but it's, it's not just, you know, it's not just, it's not just oddities or, 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 you know, once, once in a while, uh, deaths. It's, it's, um, it's also, you know, tick-borne illnesses, mosquito-borne illnesses, uh, diseases that are claiming thousands of lives around the world, millions of lives really around the world when it comes to mosquito-borne illnesses. Um, and what kind of impact rising temperatures and changing weather patterns have on that. And it turns out that the impact is, is pretty profound. I mean, it, it, it's like all encompassing and it's going to absolutely reshape the makeup of our world. And we're still just beginning to understand it. And that that's, that's really why I've decided to, to kind of focus on this uh, more or less full time, because it just feels like not enough people know about it. Do you think that you are ahead of the curve on this journalistically? Do you think more people are going to pick up this beat later? It's hard to say. I, mm. I, I'm going to say yes, because I, I just really, I don't see how it, it wouldn't become more of an issue. Um, so this past summer, three people died of um, after eating shellfish um, in Connecticut and New York. And that story was in the New York Times, it was in the news. The connection between Vibrio, which is the bacteria that caused the illness and or the deaths and uh, climate change did not feature front and center in those conversations or in those articles. Although I think the New York Times um, mentioned it, which is great. Um, the, the, the issue there is that people are used to living their lives a certain way. And there are certain traditions and certain pastimes that are that are just like crucial. Like you're gonna go out with your friends, you're gonna have a dozen oysters, you're gonna drink some champagne or whatever it is that people do when they're eating oysters. 
<laughs> acting like it's some sort of like highfalutin thing. Like people can eat oysters no matter where they are. Expensive. They so yeah, there's there's probably bubbly ones. <laughs> they are pretty pricey. And you know, when it comes to Vibrio vulnificus, which is the 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 bacteria that these people got sick from, um, the disease is called Vibriosis. If you you can eat an oyster and feel a little bit strange and go to bed, and by the time you wake up the next morning, you can either be ready for amputation. That happens to fifty percent of people who get this disease, or dead. Um, and Vibrio is so clearly affected by climate change. It is just moving up the coast. So it's like you can see on either side of the country. It's just like, and also like along the Gulf, like it is just like, it, it's just a march up. And and every summer you see it every, every summer you see like a, a you know, a, the next notch achieved in the way that this, this bacteria is moving. And that is just, I mean, any expert you speak to is like climate change is warming the water and this bacteria is moving into new places. People aren't prepared for it. They don't know what it looks like. Um, the, the symptoms of the disease, the, the bacteria itself is invisible. Um, doctors don't know how to treat it. Um, another example of this is this fungal disease um, in the desert Southwest, which is called Valley fever. And that's another fascinating example of this type of, you know, climate change is, is making this fungal pathogen move deeper into the West and further up than it's ever been before. And in Arizona, especially doctors, even doctors there, where this is a hugely prevalent disease and has been for a long time, don't always know what they're looking at when they see it. I talked to this one guy who um, contracted Valley Fever after helping his mom. He flew out to uh, to California and helped his mom, um, you know, dig out their basement after a, a, a massive wildfire. And while he was in the basement working on, you know, like saving whatever object they had left, he breathed in these fungal spores um the coccidioides and um when he got home the next week he started feeling sick and the disease progressed from there i mean he got so sick at one point he said it felt like he had been hit all over the baseball bat and when he walked it felt like he was walking on razor blades and the doctors had no idea what was going on no clue um and finally they were ready to do a lung biopsy they found a, a mass in his lung they thought it was cancer they're gonna do a biopsy it he said that it's it felt like an episode of house like at the very last second this infectious disease specialist burst into his hospital room and said, wait, we think we know what this is. It's not cancer. It is a fungal mass. It is so common now to have this issue if you've been to an area of the, of the country where valley fever is prevalent and people still are not getting treated right. They're, they're not getting the care that they need. You, I mean, there is, you can't cut this out of your body. You need to take out antifungal medication. So it's like the way that I see it, and this is a very long-winded way of answering your question, but the way that I see it is that these there is no single source of the problem. You have a warmer continent, a warmer world, and it's almost like uh, one researcher explained it like you know climate change is taking the globe and shaking it like a snow globe, and all of these pathogens are meeting up in new configurations, and some of those are going to jump into humans, and animals are going to move around, mosquitoes are going to go up, um, ticks are going to spread out. And people are going to get really, really sick and it's already happening and we're already behind the curve on it. So, so yeah, I think people are going to start covering it more and more. Long-winded, but not unwelcome. That's terrifying. I'm from Arizona originally. I haven't anecdotally heard of anything like that happening amongst people I know, but wouldn't surprise me if it wasn't that far away either. That's, yeah, it's thousands of people every year. Thousands of people every year. Is there any uh, potential upside to some parts of the world that they will maybe face less impacts. One of the things I see from people who are a bit more skeptical of climate change and its impacts is that 
uh, weather-related deaths will continue to go down in some parts of the world where it's really cold may end up seeing some uh, positives come their way. Is there any, at least disease upside to this or is it all just getting worse everywhere? It's like, it's hard to know. So you've touched on sort of the the, the chaos element of all of this, which is that um, there, it, it, these insects, a lot of them that, that, that spread diseases um, like West Nile or uh, Valley fever, even is a good example of this, the fungal spores that cause Valley fever. If it's too wet, um, or too dry, the the instances of disease go down. So like cases go down. So valley fever, for example, like any, I don't know if you've ever gone mushroom hunting in your life, have you? Not in Arizona, but but yeah, I've been mushroom hunting. Yeah, I mean, in, in Washington state, that's that's really a huge thing. Um, and so you'll, you'll likely know that after a big rain, you know, you'll see, you know, these, these fruiting bodies popping up everywhere. If it's too dry, mushrooms can't uh, proliferate. And so in the areas where it's where valley has been you'll see during periods of drought that uh the disease drops way down then when you have a big rainstorm like a random rainstorm it flourishes again so it, predicting when those things will happen or like you know if if widespread drought occurs will that be good for valley fever potentially will it be really bad for humanity yeah like for a number of different ways <laughs> but um or a number of different reasons, but, but, um, but the same can be said of mosquitoes, like in Bangladesh, for example, when there are massive, massive floods, some, some types of mosquito bornosis, you know, go down because the, the, you know, the areas where mosquitoes breed are kind of like washed out. And so they can't, you know, their eggs are washed away, et cetera. But then if you have, you know, some rain, but not a ton, it's amazing for mosquitoes. It's complicated. I, I think that there's going to be a it's going to be a mixed bag. Overall, the way that I see the trend moving though is in a negative direction. The chaos element alone, where even if it's really cold in Minnesota or you know parts of of Canada, there are people there who are used to that because they probably chose to live there, or maybe they just have always been there. So there is a little bit more regular. Just the fact that things are changing can be. Sometimes I'll get asked to do something at work. This is such a mundane example, but the mere fact of having to expend new cognitive energy on learning something new and operationalizing it, even though the task is small, eats up a huge amount of real estate in my brain. I don't know if you feel that way at all too, even if it's like tiny, but new. Sometimes it's just like, oh God, I got to learn. Imagine that multiplied for lots and lots of things about how you're supposed to behave outside, how you're supposed to protect yourself and your family. In addition to everything else, that might just be the shock of it alone might be quite distracting and hard to absorb. Totally. I think that, I mean, and that is the real issue with adapting to climate change, right? Like it's, it's, first of all, it's expensive. Um, so that, that, that I think is probably the primary mm. obstacle, but then it's also the things that people have long known that they can do that they're the traditions, you know, even I think about, I mean, the holidays are coming up, right? Like I think about Thanksgiving's past and um, it looks like the Northeast is going to be, I mean, I'm in the Northeast. It, it looks like it's going to be chilly for Thanksgiving, which is, you know, par for the course and historically, but I remember last year it was unseasonably warm. Um, you know, even a couple weeks ago, we had like a mosquito in our apartment. So it's just, it, you know, Christmas, people it want a white Christmas. Like, I don't, like, I don't know when we're going to have a white Christmas. It, overall, the trend is, is, is decreasing in that realm. Like you might have a freak snowstorm once in a while and that happens often. Um, but, but the overall trend is just like these things that we're used to, that we, that we love to see that kind of shape how we relate to the world and natural world, to ourselves, our traditions, 
are just shifting. And it's, I find that element of this whole crisis incredibly sad. I mean, that makes me feel awful. Um, but that's just like, that's like, it's a thousand little sorrows over the course of a lifetime. And I, I'm just, I, I'm really not looking forward to that, that part of this. I mean, growing, growing older and having to shift the way that I like understand the seasons and shift my, my, my cultural and traditional, uh, you know, understandings of how things work. It's just, it's, it's, it's very painful. It's hard to quantify too. It feels a little bit spoiled yeah. to complain about it, but compared I know. to compared to some things, but any other thing. Yeah. yeah, compared to literally any other thing, but yeah, if you want a white Christmas and that's culturally important to you and you grew up with it and all of our culture and, and music, will the music even make sense to kids who don't have it? I guess they're okay in, in the South and Southwest. They're not saying white Christmases, but. No, that's just... true. But like, you know, I, I also have in the past felt somewhat ridiculous for like, you know, for mourning those things. I just think that it's important to do, especially because you know, people still don't really understand how climate change is affecting them. I think, especially in North America, we're, we're very lucky to have a climate that feels these changes subtly, you know, um, or has kind of thus far, um, that, that will change, but, but yeah, I think it's important to like, to be aware of those things. Yeah. I still have many friends and family who live in Arizona and many also in California Always mm-hmm. subtly encouraging. Oh, have you ever seen an opportunity to move to Duluth or <laughs> the Northwest or right. certain parts of New England? You should you should consider that without freaking them out. But are there other I things? Got yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you are trying to pull, pull them out of the zones where it's like. At what point did they? I know it's so it's so hard to yeah. do, especially because I feel like I I, I covered uh I've, I've written a few stories about managed retreat. And, oh my god, it's such a fraught topic. It's like telling people that they can't live where they've lived is just a an impossible thing and politically it's impossible i mean that people are gonna that have guy to who, move did you, did you how old are you sorry i don't have to put this on the show if you don't want to say but i'm curious if you're the same <laughs> generation as i am i'm 28 20 okay maybe you didn't watch it then because mount st helen's blowing up when i was a kid was it was it oh yeah deal? and then there's a video of that guy is like i'm not moving i don't care i'm gonna stay here right. until it explodes and you're just like you're going to die in a, in a blaze of glory. Like you, you could also just move like 10 miles down the road and it's fine. But right. So that multiplied yeah, by people, how many people need to move. Well, like 40% of the, yeah. of the U S lives along the coastline. I mean, I don't know what percentage of those are like 123 million Americans are going to have to move due to rising levels and more extreme storms, but it's going to be some percentage of that. Even 1% of that is crazy. That's, That's so crazy. many people. I mean, Yeah it costs millions of dollars to move like a hundred people, you know? And so I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen there. I don't either. And I'm wondering, I mean, um, yeah, your colleague, Jake, Jake Biddle, that's how I say his name. Yeah. Yeah. Great mm-hmm. displacement. It was a really, really cool book, but the stories in there about the politics of asking people to move and compensating them for doing so are even still so complicated, even yeah. if it's done seemingly out of good reason. It's not like eminent domain where a stadium is going to get built there and people are right. annoyed by it. It's like, your house will keep flooding and flooding and flooding forever. Totally. Even still, even yeah. still it's hard. Yeah. Jake has really, Jake, though, my colleague who writes about uh, manage retreat and climate migration and that, that budding um, beat and, and in sort of like field of research too is, is, is that he's an amazing writer and he, he really has opened my eyes to how interesting politically that conversation is. And, you know, like, 
people I think don't realize, and again, this is not something I would ever say to someone who is facing the possibility of having to move like themselves in, in, in the, in the short term. But something I definitely think about is that there is funding for this right now. I mean, governments are still are right now throwing money at this problem. Um, that money will run out, you know? Um, so I don't, I don't know. It's hard to think of these people as like, they're both lucky and unlucky, you know? So I don't, it's a, it's a tricky place to be in. Very much feels like musical chairs, even if just on the private market side, uh, how long, if you bought property in Florida, how long do you hang on? Cause it's still assume it's probably still booming. Interest rates have gone up so much at this point. I wonder if it's maybe cooled some, but still Florida and Arizona are still very desirable places to be at some point that might not be true. And then what happens is that do prices collapse all of a sudden as everyone is rushing to get out in time before the prices really collapse. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, that's going to be such a cluster. And then it's also, you know, in Arizona, for example, it's like, I covered heat a lot this summer. We had a limited run uh, newsletter focused on extreme heat and we wrote about Arizona a ton. And I wrote about, you know, what heat like that does to the human body. And there, the, one of the stories that stuck me with was this woman who um, she was elderly and she was too hot inside of her house where she had air conditioning on and she went outside to get help and she fell and landed on the pavement obviously where, where you fall and and the pavement though was extremely hot i mean she she had third degree burns over most of her body um God. and like it's that kind of thing i spoke to uh er doctors who were telling me about i mean me and this er doctor had this long conversation about how she was treating patients and what that looked like and then i wrote an article about it but you know after i stopped recording we talked just casually between us about about what it's like to live there and she was saying that she can't she, her her child and who's very young they go to the local pool and then when they leave it, the asphalt is so hot that the her kids shoes melt and so she just like can't fathom what the future will look like there she's not feeling hopeful about it at, at all and so you think about that I mean you're gonna have people it's like brain drain almost you know it's like you're gonna have these people who like play really critical roles in their communities fleeing and I don't know I, I think it's I'm glad Jake is covering this subject because I, I could hardly even wrap my mind around how to do that at all well I've not heard the brain drain point but obviously the people who are most mobile probably most wealthy able to make alternative career choices they're going to probably be among the first to leave when they can totally well, Arizonans love to say it's a dry heat though, so it's okay but maybe that will, yeah, totally, yeah. maybe we'll have to retire that horrible <laughs> I've heard that probably 1500 times in my life <laughs> I yeah i mean it is a dry heat that's the thing it's like it's, i'm sure you know about wet bulb temperature but it's it, like tell us about humidity it. well humidity so it's this oh, this is this is actually one of the, the most distressing uh things that i learned this summer so um heat related death is a really interesting climate driven impact. Um, and obviously people have been dying from extreme temperatures on, on either side of the spectrum um, for a long time. It's not, it's not, it's nothing new. What is new is these, um, you know, climate driven extreme heat waves. So there was one in 2003 in Europe that killed in the end, like 30,000 people. And what's interesting about that is that while it was unfolding, there wasn't, you know, if, if anything, if, if a bomb had killed 30,000 people, 
I mean, think about like what the reception to that would have been. Everyone in the entire world would know about it. Heat in over the period of a, of a few weeks, um, about a month really in, in Europe, killed 30,000 people. And it, it didn't make headlines in that way. Like people have a hard time at the time. I think this is changing now as, as journalists kind of like get better recognizing what, what these deaths really are. Um, and governments do, of course, too. But at the time, there wasn't this clear, like, threading of the needle where it was like, okay, there was a heat wave, people died in their homes, that area of the world doesn't have uh, air conditioning, they're not used to extreme heat. Um, and that was really one of the first examples of like, okay, if temperatures get to a certain level, the, the human body cannot keep up with it without external cooling technology. And then you have mass death. And that is the subject of a, of a lot of studies that came out this summer that talked about wet bulb, which is sort of the humidity plus temperature. Um, and like at what there's a threshold of, of that where it's like, if you pass that, then your body can't keep up and you overheat and you die. Um, and so one of the studies that I wrote about talked about how, and it was a very complicated study to cover. It took me a long time to figure out the science behind it, but basically it was like, they, they made two assertions. The first is that we're approached, the levels that approach wet bulb um are are people you can die in that zone too you don't have to like th there is no clear threshold like the human it depends what you're used to it depends what you have access to um so so you can die when it gets hot out even before you've reached like the technical wet bulb threshold and the second thing that they discovered was that much of the world um is on track to to meet that dangerous like red zone of of high heat and high humidity much sooner than we thought. So, so by, by mid-century, we're looking at large swaths of the world where you might have uh, periods where temperatures exceed the, the threshold of human survivability. And what happens then? Do you have, well, I mean, I, it took me a long time to get this researcher to like tell me straight up what he was saying. He was like, you know, using kind of like academic like research jargon. And I was like, hey, like, what do you mean? Like, what are you talking about? And he was like, I'm talking about mass death. And I was like, oh, okay and from then on my whole perspective on this has kind of shifted where I'm like oh my god we, this has happened before we know that it can happen it's gonna happen again are we aware of what's at risk here because we're talking about a lot of people being at risk of of dying you're you're I see your face and I feel like maybe I've gotten a little too dark I can no no it's, it's, scale it I, just, I just I'm just laughing at the academics like it's so sometimes so hard because they're often so reticent to say things so so firmly like that so oh yeah I, I love that you pinned them down and said okay mass death yeah, it's like I don't I don't understand oh, what are you saying yeah no it's okay to go um, dark with yeah. it. I, I want to know what what the world is actually facing here I imagine the parts of the world that are both humid and very hot are probably not you know, the wealthiest parts of the world that are going to be able to add huge amounts of cooling infrastructure rapidly. That sounds, what, I don't know what's going to happen. Is it just migration or, or death, some combination, or is maybe adaptation going to swoop in and save things? What are you, what are you expecting? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think that I'm, I'm always hesitant to believe that, um, you know, like tech, tech will save us. Um, but I, it's good. It's good to be a little, at least skeptical of that. It, it yeah. may work, but yeah, sometimes people go overboard with it for sure. Right. I think that. Uh, no, I think that the the reality is that a lot of people will die. Um, a lot of people will will move. They'll also move with, within their own countries as well. So they'll they'll shift. Um, city centers will get probably more crowded. Um, there will probably be some element of. Um, of technology that, that, that aids with this. So, so like, you know, a portable ACs, more affordable ACs, 
the problem there, of course, is that, you know, air conditioners use a tremendous amount of energy. So you have grids that, you know, particularly in developing countries where, where the grid is not as reliable as it could be. But like, so even the Texas freeze, which we think of as, as um, it, it's like counterintuitive, but it's also a partially climate driven impact, um, you know, killed so many people in Texas. And, and, and that's Texas, you know, we have, we have areas of the world that um, are far less advanced when it comes to, you know, the, their, their energy grids. And so you're hooking up a lot of new tech to that. And, you know, you could have blackouts, deaths there. There are unlimited ways in which this could go wrong. Um, and so I'm not feeling super confident that we're going to save the number of lives that we need to in order to, uh, you know, avert the, the, the worst effects of the worst, the worst health effects of climate change. I've often been almost more worried, less of the deaths, because I imagine there'll probably be something like i imagine what happens at the beginning of ministry for the future where there is a heat related mass death event god there's got to be a better way to say that in uh like i think it's like in rajasthan or somewhere in mm -hmm. like northern india anyways so there'll probably be like some of those and then people will freak out and then try to find places that are safer in their country or elsewhere but i'm also worried about the political ramifications of having mass immigration where i think that a lot of times that does result in sort of populist uh sentiment there that is not positive yeah. even, even in the nordic states they're much much less generous with their welfare benefits once there's a lot of immigrants who come in so if, if it's bad if the scandinavians can't do it i can't imagine the rest of the world is probably going to be like that much more welcoming and good about it especially when you know mass immigration could have many fold the amount of people that need to leave the the parts of the tropics and the hotter parts of the world very quickly um i, I imagine that's going to lead to basically types of like fascist backlash flash essentially i hope it doesn't but it wouldn't surprise me if that were a possibility yeah i don't i i also um think that's definitely a possibility you know one of the so back in may um i wrote a piece about uh it's called boots on the ground and it's actually this is a little bit off off uh topic in one. terms of climate and health but basically what i had so I, so I had fallen down like a, a rabbit hole and I, I, you know, coming off of, I'm too long winded here, but I, but this, this story is just so fascinating. Go, go ahead. Right I like militia. it. Just, just teach me something. Go ahead. Okay, great. So, so, okay. This is probably the weirdest story I've ever written, um, like in most random, but while, so I was, um, I was monitoring this, this, uh, situation unfolding during the midterm elections, uh, in Arizona where these groups were, were like surveilling ballot boxes do you remember this it was like a big so. scandal mm -mm. okay so these uh you know like far-right individuals th this conspiracy had spread that um democrats were like ballot stuffing and so um they were you know st sitting out kind of staking out ballot boxes in arizona and the group that was behind that was called or is called lions of liberty and so i started just randomly i, I had some free time and i was googling lions of liberty and I found out that it's the political arm of a group called the Yavapai County Preparedness Team. Now, that sounds like a government group. Um, and I had been covering disasters at that point a, a bit, disaster response. And so I kind of just started looking into what that group was because I was like, okay, they sound like they Gotta work be a with, militia, I mean, right? like definitely on their, <laughs> on their website, pretty much on their web. They refuse. So, okay, I'll get into that. It's complicated. It's not complicated. Yes, they are. They are. I, I would define them as, as a militia. Um, they, they obviously would not. Um, 
and and take great issue with with that uh, categorization. But um, what I discovered was that this group, which actually stemmed from the Oath Keepers, um, the guy who runs this group, Jim Arroyo, um, was the vice president of the Arizona chapter of the Oath Keepers, which was and still is the, the largest Oath Keepers chapter in, in the U.S. And so what I ended up finding out was that this guy, basically after the insurrection at the Capitol, um, the Oath Keepers kind of splintered. So they, they're, you know, you've got people who, who went to jail, et cetera. So there, this population sort of in the upper most ranks of that group. And this guy, Jim Arroyo, decided to sort of split off his section of the Oath Keepers and rename it. Um, they're still Oath Keepers. They still put the flags at meetings, but, um, but, but, but they're named this like very innocuous um, name. And, and what they drew on is this interesting history of within the Oath Keepers that dates back to, uh, you know, years and years, like a decade or more. Um, the Oath Keepers, when they first started, created these things called uh, civilization preparedness teams, um, uh, CPTs. And these groups would go in after a hurricane or another event like that and hand out meals and help rebuild and basically just like lend a hand. Um, and, you know, that sounds really, really great. And I think that for some of the communities they served, it probably was a welcome, um, um, you know, site to see these guys show up after like Hurricane Harvey, for example, which is one of the hurricanes they came and helped out after um, in Texas. But um, what what really was happening behind the scenes was that basically these guys were like kind of using disasters as like an opportunity to rec maybe recruit, but also like galvanize um, public support for their work. It was sort of like a PR uh, scheme a little bit to some extent. And so, I mean, that in of itself was just fascinating. I had no idea the Oath Keepers had this history of sort of dis using disasters as an opportunity to sort of build their brands. And then I started looking into this, you know, YCPT, the Yavapai County Preparedness Team, and they were using that, some of that same, um, some of those lessons learned to inform their work in Arizona. And so what they're doing is they are, you know, they're, they're preparing the community for disasters. And so I started, you know, listening in on their meetings and interviewing, I interviewed Jim Arroyo, the guy behind it, and he just like, you know, totally a conspiracy theorist through and through. And his meetings have been drawing larger and larger numbers of people. Um, he's got sheriffs and, and folks from all over Arizona, like the political landscape there. I mean, it, it, he is like deeply entrenched in, uh, in Yavapai County and in, in state politics there. Um, and people don't really realize that like the group that's like training people to like survive like a climate apocalypse are actually these people who have like very, very dangerous and um, yeah, I would define them as just very dangerous conspiracy beliefs about, about you name it. I mean, we're in a world war three, this is the beginnings of a civil war. Um, there's gonna be mass blackouts, like all like that the government puts on, you know, is orchestrating. So it's like, that was just the strangest rabbit hole to fall into where I was like, you actually do have these right-wing groups preparing for climate change in these really twisted ways and unpacking that. I mean, that's not just happening in the U S it's happening all over the world and it's a growing issue, you know? Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's, that's the weirdest I've ever written. Do you think that they, do they believe climate change is happening, but it's sort of the government is doing it on purpose or something or it, 
What, what are they? What do they think about climate change? Or did you even catch an inkling of that? I think some of them um, probably believe that it's real. Jim Arroyo, I asked him straight out. You know, do you do you believe in climate change? And he he said no, that it's like a conspiracy. China is involved. It's really hard to kind of get a sense of like what hmm. what he's even saying. Um, but he, but no, I mean, he just recognizes that disasters are an opportunity uh, happen often and they're for a reason happening more often and that you know getting people prepared for those it's almost like when you are building up a militia you need constant like tests of the militia's strength to like keep people active and involved and the fact that you know there are natural disasters that happen all over the country all the time is like almost as like proof to him that that the group needs has a purpose and needs to keep going I mean, the line of reasoning isn't wrong. It's Naomi Klein coined it and then also inverted it with this changes everything. It's like common yeah. that after disasters, changes can happen. They can be good changes. They can be bad changes, but changes are probably most likely in those moments, right? Yeah. I mean, and and it's definitely a change. I mean, you've got, I don't know. It's like, it was a tough story to write because it's, oftentimes I write about how communities need to help each other post-disaster. I mean, that is, that's the reason why this works. FEMA, FEMA is stretched. I mean, that's the other part of the story really is that FEMA is stretched incredibly thin and is not built for the era of climate change. (laughs) Yeah, that was one of the things he was, this Arroyo was telling me that, you know, FEMA is building camps and it's going to imprison Americans. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, Like, I think that he, I, where that stemmed from is, you know, after a disaster, FEMA will erect a giant, like, f- ground operation. I mean, that you've got it, it's huge. And to the conspiracy theorist next door, that looks like a like a, a camp for for prisoners. It sounds like you had something to say, and then I had to jump in with my asinine comment. But <laughs> you were driving <laughs> towards something about FEMA being stretched thin. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. FEMA, well, FEMA is stretched thin. I mean, that 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 is the unfortunate reality. Is that like, there the U.S. is so large and faces such a a wide array of climate driven threats, um, and you know, hurricanes, t- tornadoes, earthquakes, you name it. Like, it's just it's massive, and so there is no way for FEMA to be everywhere at once. And so, what happens after disasters often is that communities will help each other, and that's a beautiful thing. It has to keep happening. I mean, there is no. There is no way forward in a climate changed U.S. without communities helping each other. Fortunately, people are not aware that like one of the groups that shows up to help, which sounds like it's works for the government, the Alpine County Preparedness Team, might be a crew of like conspiracy fueled, you know, like nut jobs. I mean, so so it's 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 dangerous out there for a variety of reasons. Yeah, and we got onto this topic by saying that it's possible that with mass immigration, we'll see a lot more intergroup conflict. We might see more uh, movements like this that have a reactionary kind of feel to it. Maybe this becomes a more mainstream uh, disaster response. Is that an okay supposition? Well, I think, yeah. I mean, the, the idea is that is that this is there's potential here for this to grow into a larger problem the people that i spoke to at fema and the people who research fema and research um far-right white nationalism um say are concerned that you know the government's not aware of this threat 
I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that every time there's a disaster, there's going to be a, a right wing group showing up to, to like hand out hot meals. That's not the case. It's not as widespread as, as that. But there are these examples. I mean, there's a different example of, um, you know, in California, after some really bad wildfires, this uh, like right wing group came in and handed out like business cards with the QR code on the back that went to their website. And it was like a, you know, essentially like a neo-Nazi group. Um, so it's definitely a, a thing. It's not the number one thing that happens after disaster, but it's definitely, it's a, it's a, it's a growing, it's potentially a growing trend that is alarming to a lot of the folks that I spoke to for this story. It's possible we're, we're, pretty far out speculating, but it wouldn't surprise me if that was a trend. I think when there are times of um, conflict, I, I always come back to the the hard hats. Do you remember that from uh, the Nixon era? Do you remember that? No. So, so the hard hats were, I think they were New York City construction workers who were so annoyed at flower power happening in the streets of New York City that they would come down. They'd see these hippies with Viet Cong flags and basically yeah. just come down ready to fight be like why are you flying our buddies are over there fighting and dying in the mud and you're flying the enemy's flag and i think what they're and of course the protests are lawless they're at the like 68 like uh what do they call it like the rage days in chicago or whatever yeah so like that the average person i feel like people even if they're not politically that engaged even if they ostensibly agree with the protesters that amount of chaos is really threatening i think people probably are more likely to accept a stronger hand of order and maybe even side with the hard hats just because the disorder even if they agree with that the war in vietnam is wrong they still might end up siding with the hard hats because they hate the hippies destroying downtown and breaking windows and all of that so it wouldn't surprise me that if we did have more of a reactionary feel to climate change it might not lead to the all we can save sort of left of center our hearts grow and encompass the entire world it might just be we're tighter and meaner than ever yeah, it looks to be, that's exactly right. I mean, it looks to be that that way already, uh, you know, nationalism aside, it's like white nationalism aside. It, it's a, uh, you can see that happening with the way that countries are, I mean, back to what we were talking about before, shutting down their borders or restricting immigrants and um, people are going to have to move out of areas that are going to become just simply too hot for human survival. I don't foresee a lot of countries welcoming those those migrants with with open arms. Um, I think it's going to be, I think tighter and meaner is, is sort of the, is going to be the name of the game. Yeah. I'm trying to think of some some upside or like some silver lining or something to hope for, but I I think that's, I think that outcome is somewhat likely. Well, I mean, yeah, back to like the politics of it. I think that, um, you know, you can look at, I'm sure that this has been a topic for a lot of guests on this, on this show, but the, the IRA and the uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill, I mean, there, there's so much good funding that I think is, is, you know, it is too little, too, too late to some extent, but, but it is, it's great that it's here now. And, and that will save a lot of lives back to the health element. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, is that a lot of these illnesses and, and potential deaths are preventable that, you know, heat related deaths are preventable. Um, and so that is the silver lining is that, that, you know, we're very good at saving lives when we recognize that there is an issue and we dedicate resources to it. And so that to me is, is sort of the, the most hopeful element of this all is that the, we, humans are pretty good at coming up with solutions. We just have to recognize that there's a problem first. 
you're optimistic then at least on the the disease front the heat front that some amount of a handle will be achieved on it i think i think so i mean the reason why uh people in alaska die after eating um toxic shellfish is is mainly because there isn't a monitoring system um there so so every other state in the nation that 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 has a coastline will monitor and test their water for the algae that causes the toxic yeah, I've seen shellfish. those signs on the beach it'll be like red tide or like don't eat anything exactly yeah okay that's what you mean yeah and so it's and that saves lives we're aware um in alaska there is no such system the government there has not dedicated resources to it um i won't get into alaska's complicated uh, funding structure but but it's just oil has a lot to do with it. It doesn't really matter. It does matter, but not, not for our purposes. Um, the thing about that story that was so uplifting is that the, the community there is coming together to, to solve this problem. So you've got like the research community that, that lives in Kodiak and then also tribes that are like the Alutic who, who are nearby teaming up together to try and prevent people from dying. And that is huge. Um, it's better when there are, you know, there's a lot of resources thrown in. It's not, it's better when there's, you know, it's not just like a couple of community members trying to save lives together, but it's awesome that that's happening and those deaths are preventable, you know? So, yeah. For the insect-borne illnesses, are we going to see mm-hmm. a resurgence of things like DDT come out or other types of uh, pesticides that we're going to see probably there's something better that is not nearly as destructive but is it possible it reinforces some of the original Rachel Carson-esque uh, environmental concerns here as we try to deal with disease it's possible I I feel like the good news there and it's true DDT and mosquito-borne illnesses I mean that that is a you can really clearly see how that has affected how pesticides and, and other other uh, chemical agents, you know, really decrease the level of mosquito-borne illnesses. The logic of it makes sense. Like the people who are supportive of it, like, yeah, like you are trading human lives versus some more abstract, indirect, other types of life will die, will harm the ecosystem. There will be some bad effects from DDT, but the mosquito-borne illnesses, like on net, could it possibly be good in some places? Maybe, I don't know. Is, is Potentially, this I, to say here? Uh, well, yeah, because only because I mean the trade-off is not is not even in that way. I mean there are other ways to save lives, and and that's what's so interesting about especially mosquito-borne illnesses is that the vaccine element is is fascinating. With malaria, for example, there is a great vaccine, but the problem with that is that 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 vaccine is is outdated and it needs to be updated. And so um, that's underway. I mean the Gates Foundation, for example, will works on this issue a lot. There are um mosquito nets that are those get handed out usually in affected countries um every three years they usually degrade in about a year and a half so making stronger nets is like a a very simple solution that saves a lot of lives and then you have you know other types of like therapies that are getting developed um when it comes to you know uh, treatments in that way and then even before someone gets bit i mean female mosquitoes are the only mosquitoes that bite and so there are efforts underway to uh, to like inoculate mosquito populations with this bacteria that like eliminates either the the the, uh, the disease, the pathogen in the first place, or to produce only male mosquitoes. That's really exciting. I mean, there are there are real advancements happening there that I should be writing about more. Actually, that feels like a second phase of my of my beat that I haven't like quite like 
stepped into yet, but but I'm excited to get there because the solutions are are totally possible. There are some climate problems that don't really have solutions. I mean, have you had anyone on talking about tipping points? Not not um, by itself, but yeah, that's that's a spooky one. Antarctica right. and is I spooky won't... right now. You can, you can yeah, do that if you want. I don't want to. I mean, I feel like the I'm like, I don't want to be the bearer of, of doom. I, uh, but for example, you know those types of issues where you've got like entire ice sheets collapsing and that that type of thing. Solutions there are a lot trickier than solutions in in, in my realm of coverage, which is which are you know like let's engineer a better like let's engineer a solution. You know, um, let's make all these female mosquitoes male. And so that that's that's exciting. That's cool. I mean that that gives me. Um, some hope as I cover this this increasingly hopeless beat. Wow! For someone who's skeptical of tech, that's a lot of faith to put in there, Soya. Well, I just I have faith in like in like gene editing and stuff like that, and and I have faith in some to, in some tech. I think that obviously the one solution that that no one really wants to embrace is just the most obvious and only time tested real solution to this problem which is just we have to stop burning fossil fuels i mean there is just no way around that is it bad that um, i didn't know what you were going to say until you said it yeah that is bad. <laughs> yeah it is bad okay <laughs> i was like what could it be <laughs> okay yeah fossil fuels yeah with you yeah i'm dumb okay yeah that's established. no come on I'm mm-hmm. here to validate you. Don't forget that. Oh, God. Yeah, I forgot. Yeah, thank you. That's good. Let's get back to that. What are some other <laughs> yeah, amazing yeah. guests that we've had? So anyways, you're you're happy, though. There are some things that you're able to say that we could get a handle on it. We've identified the problem. More awareness is coming to these things. You're writing about them. I'm sure occasionally you cross paths with policymakers or staffers who are reading these things and trying to create policy to deal with it. Um, and it's not nearly as insurmountable oh. as maybe we could put pumps that pump deep very cold water back on top of the ice sheet to prevent it from fully melting which is more science fiction maybe than reality yet so you're more hopeful then there's good stuff i am i'm hopeful because you know deaths are generally preventable and um and the more people are aware of it comes back to that this this thing that you highlighted in the beginning of our conversation which is that this beat and this realm of research is not fully understood yet. I mean, it, it the, the the research community just started, really. I mean, not just, but it's just, it's, it's it's a young field, um, and it's definitely a young beat in this in journalism in general. So, um, I think that the more people are aware of this, the more solutions there will be, and that is great. I mean, that there that that there's only up to go in in that realm. However, we're in a race against the clock, as with all things, and the, the Pandora's box that I was referencing is like creaking open. And so it's kind of a matter of, of figuring out if we can, you know, stem these threats before they really start killing a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, the show is called Reversing Climate Change. I'm, I'm hoping over time we're able to bend it back down PPM wise to a pre-industrial level of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere, but also... I wonder just how bad it's going to get and how much of Pandora's box is open. And hopefully you're able to stuff it all back in there before it's really extremely dire. I don't know. Some days I feel quite optimistic. Some days less so. How do you feel about it? Do you also waver? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's, it's complicated. It's like, I definitely waver. Um, I, I generally feel pretty, uh, 
not hopeless, but like pretty, pretty resigned to a, living in a different type of world um, in the coming decades. I think one of the cool things about, you know, let's say we get back to like pre-industrial levels of protected matter. Um, I think that um, of pollution rather of, of, of greenhouse gas emissions rather um, let's say we get back there. Um, the the good news is that the progress we will have made on combating these uh, infectious diseases is going to still be relevant. There were diseases obviously before climate change was a thing. And there will be diseases if we like solve, you know, the, the climate crisis. Um, I'm, I'm honestly not sure what that looks like really. Uh, but, but, but let's say, you know, we invent like a giant vacuum that sucks all the CO2 out of the atmosphere, then you're still going to have like insect borne illnesses, mosquito borne illnesses. Um, we, any solution we come up with is going to, is going to save lives far out into the future as well. So, so that, that's good. I mean, I feel hopeful about that. Good that we don't totally depress everyone and leave them with something to be hopeful for. <laughs> yeah. And uh, if someone wants to follow your work, I'll put a link in the show notes um, to your writer's profile at Grist alongside some choice articles, the ones we talked about. Is there anything that in particular you want people to go to one, one piece of all of them that you think is a great starting point? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, yeah. So yes. Um, over the summer, I collaborated with the Associated Press, their, their climate data team. And we wrote this sort of package of stories called climate connections. That's their name. They, you know, <laughs> they have some very particular ways that they go about writing about climate change. Um, I wanted to call the whole thing just stick, but they no one went for that. Um, and so, so they, so, so we collaborated with them, Chris and the AP and uh, that's online. It's beautiful. It's like gorgeous to look at the data team there did such a great job. Our illustration team, this woman, Amelia Bates, uh, illustrated the whole package. And so if you just look up Climate Connections Grist or Climate Connections Associated Press, um, you will be able to scroll through this like visually amazing and rich piece of work that kind of walks you through how climate change influences the spread of disease. You can look at like the late, we, we, we plumbed the internet for, for and like the, the research available for all the data we could find on this topic and presented it in a really interesting and, and beautiful way. So I would, that's where I would send readers if they wanted to check out this overlap a little bit more. Link to that is in the show notes. Zoya, I'm so happy that we got to have you back on. Let's not make it another four years. Oh my God. And <laughs> several hundred articles since. Let's, 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 let's have that time next time. Sounds great. I, I'll, I'll be here whenever. Okay, great. Well, thanks so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed and have a lovely day. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.